My job is to speak to clients um, on the phone about uh, quantities and uh, type of copier paper. You know, uh, whether we can supply it to them, whether they can uh, pay for it, and um, I'm I'm boring myself just talking about this. Our high school guidance counselor used to ask us what you would do if you had a million dollars. Didn't have to work. And then invariably, whatever you'd say, that was supposed to be your career. So if you wanted to fix old cars, then you're supposed to be an auto mechanic. So what did you say? I never had an answer. Show of hands. How many of you have ever maybe felt, if not with the same words, with the same spirit, as you hear in those two guys from those shows that that take a, a good hard look at the nature of work and, and sometimes find it rather unpleasant and unsettling. It could even be the case that you may have absolutely adored your vocation at a certain point, but at, at some point you, you come to embrace that, that uh, similar kind of loss of spirit for it, loss of enthusiasm for it. It's that kind of sensibility that leads me to make a confession to you I have failed you, and it's not the first time, and it won't be the last time, and in that sense, I have failed you uh, to talk about something that is rather crucial, and uh, as of this Labor Day, um, this is my fourth Labor Day with you and this family, and I have never as yet spoken to something that has to do with what we're thinking about this weekend, and what we'll refrain from doing Monday, and what we're all doing in this hour together, and part of my confession to you comes from a lament that was issued by a British author of the 20th century. Her name was Dorothy Sayers. She was a playwright. Uh, she was a theologian. Uh, she wrote fiction. And about work, from a Christian perspective, she said this, In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that, as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life. You can't argue with that perspective that is out to say to me and to you what you and I attend to in this hour, on Sundays, on the Sabbath, is distinct, but it is inseparable from everything else that we do during our other waking and working hours. What does it mean to think about this thing that we call work, whether it is paid or unpaid, whether it is a, a vocation or whether it is volunteer? If the Lord is responsible for making us body and soul, then doesn't he have an interest in what you and I give our bodies and souls to in most of our waking hours? It's Labor Day. It's a day to, to break from work, but it's also a day to reflect on it. 
And we're going to let this day of rest be an opportunity to reflect on what we do when we're not resting. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at a passage that has everything to do, not with our work, but with God's work. The work that he does on our behalf, work that we could not do ourselves. And we're going to listen to what that work is, the glory of that work, and then try to flesh out the implications both of the meaning of our work and the manner in which we do so. So whether you are pre-employed or in this season unemployed or in other seasons underemployed or if you are, as they say, post-employed, I think we need to look this day in depth at what is the glory of the work that is God has done on our behalf and then to ask ourselves, how does that shape the way we think about the meaning and the manner of our work? So let's listen to what Paul had to say about midway through his letter to the church at Philippi. The central text for today is found in Philippians chapter 3. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my, on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to that which lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. So just a little context, we are dropping into the middle of his conversation to those churches in Philippi. He is in prison. And he is, has in this letter already thanked them for their partnership with him. He has consoled them. Even though he's in prison, he in no way feels like his life or his ministry is constrained in that setting. He's also there to confront them. He hears about some dissension that has uh, emerged from, from within the ranks, and he's calling them to humility. But what he does here in the passage we've looked at is primarily one thing, and that is to warn them. And he says there in verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about some who 
had also followed him to share the news of Jesus. They exalted the name of Christ. They, they preached Christ as had been crucified and had risen. And yet, they are adding something else to their explanation of the news that Jesus had come to share and which Paul had come to share with them. He had come, they had come to say that to benefit from Jesus' work, you had to work to live out the fullness of the Old Testament law. That your work, in some sense, determined your share in Jesus' work on your behalf. And Paul, in language that could not be more strident, is denouncing that idea with every fiber of his being, with every um, mark of his ink quill pen on this letter. And you have to ask yourself, why is he being so uh, denunciatory? Why is he so serious? Why does he call them dogs and mutilators of the flesh? Why... Why is he so up in arms about it? Let me tell you why. If I had a, a table in front of me here and I had two glasses, and in one glass there was a, a clear glass of water, and in another glass was a glass of clear bleach, and I set that on the table, and then in walk your children to come, and they see these two glasses, which look to them almost identical. If either of them reach for the wrong glass, I know what you would do. You would say, don't! It's dangerous, it's toxic, that, that that which looks entirely nourishing and good and will wet your whistle and help refresh you could actually be poison unto you. And Paul is saying that there is a teaching that has all the marks of looking just like the genuine article, but that if you drink from it, it's a danger to you. It's a danger to your understanding of your relationship with your Father. And what that alternative view of Jesus had been put forth is the idea that your obedience would mean how you find your acceptance. That whatever you do out of gratitude or, or, or thankfulness or, or awe or fear, there was a teaching that said unless you followed in that suit, you could not benefit from his work. And even on its face, it sounds reasonable. It sounds like you're, you're having a little skin in the game, as they say. It, everything else in this life is just like that. You, you get out of it what you put into it. That's like everything else in this life. And yet Paul is out to say that the gospel is not like anything else in this life. It is a different message. It is a different message measure of news that is out to say to you this, the, the gospel, um, your, your faithfulness to him can never be a means by which you try to secure his favor. His work on your behalf is what secures your favor. And that's why he puts it after rattling off his sort of spiritual resume in which he talks about all the ways in which he'd been faithful, all the ways in which he impressed himself, all the ways in which he might have said to himself, maybe under his breath, Look at my faithfulness. God must be impressed with me. His most succinct explanation of the gospel is what he says there in verse 9. That he might be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. In other words, the gospel is this. Your acceptance with God, your righteousness in his sight, rests entirely upon his work. Period. Full stop. Nothing to add to that, nothing to qualify it. That's the gospel. That's the glory of his work. 
And you hear that every week. And hopefully that should not be new to you. But the question now on this Labor Day weekend is, how does the glory of his work, how is that relevant to how you and I think of our work? Because in this passage, he's not saying a thing about what you do in the way of a job, to make a living, just to survive. He doesn't say anything about that. But I would say to you that this text, the glory of God's work, has eminent relevance for how you think about the meaning and manner of your work. When it comes to the meaning of your work, the way in which the gospel is relevant is, first of all, in the way of a warning. Our work, it is possible to think of it in a, in a way similar to how Paul thought of his obedience prior to him hearing about Jesus. He, as I said earlier, would imagine all of the ways he had been pious, all of the ways he had been faithful, all of the ways he, in, at least in his mind, thought he was fulfilling the law uh, adequately in himself, and he thought it would be by that that he could, in some sense, find a commendation from God. That would be the means by which he could claim God's favor upon him. And yet what Paul was out to say to us is that there is a subtle but deep deception in how you think of the gospel in that way. And it's that warning that he's making to them in their thinking about the gospel that is a similar kind of warning to how we think about our work, whatever it may be. Whether you, whether you dig trenches or, or draft blueprints or uh, send people to other planets. How you think of your work, there's a, there's a danger. There's a subtle danger in that, and that is in thinking that your work, your success, can actually be the measure of your value to God or even to yourself. That whatever reputation you gain from it, whatever the outcomes of your effort, what Paul would warn us of is that even though you may gain satisfaction from that and that there's nothing harmful in that, and, and we'll think about that, we'll talk about that more shortly, more than it being satisfaction, the problem is you can turn that satisfaction into a substitute for what he's done for you. That your work in your mind can be a substitute for his work on your behalf. That however you think of your work can in some way lead you to believe that you really don't even need Jesus for any of it and not even for your labor. And that is his warning to us. This, this Jewish Messiah tells this Jewish Pharisee that unless he sees himself as utterly dependent upon the work of that Messiah, then he has no part in him. And unless you and I conceive of our work as no substitute for him, we will end up making it a substitute for him. This Jewish Messiah is the one we must follow. And if you don't follow this Jewish Messiah, then you are liable to get caught between one of two Greek myths. Um, both of them you may have heard of. The first one is the Greek myth of Icarus. He's the son of Daedalus. He uh, longs to fly. He makes these wings out of wax. He's able to soar up into the sky just like the birds. People warn him, don't get too close to the sun. And yet he forgets to heed their call. And the only thing that is governing him and his wings is his own ambition. He feels like he needs to submit to nothing but his own desire to be high and flying. Well, he flies too close to the sun. His wings melt. He falls. He drowns. He dies. That's the myth of Icarus. He would not submit whatever his desire for to fly was to, to 
reality that what it was. It was. He was in submission to nothing but his own ambition. And when it comes to your work, uh, your work, if, if it answers to nothing more than your own ambition, then you are like Icarus. Uh, you will try to soar higher than you can, and in time you will discover that it cannot take you where you want to go, and if you think your work is a substitute for his work on his behalf, then you are Icarus. And your wings will melt. If you make your work your wings, you will fall. And that's the first Greek myth that you get caught in if you don't follow this Jewish Messiah. The second Greek myth that you're, that you're liable to is the Greek myth of Sisyphus. Uh, Sisyphus was a king. He uh, sought to deceive the gods. Uh, the gods condemn him for his offense, and they punish him. They, they put him in a canyon, and the rest of his life he is condemned to push this large stone, um, far heavier than him, up and the only way he can ex escape from this canyon is to finally push that rock upside one side of the canyon. And every time he gets close, the rock is just too heavy and it rolls back down and he must do it all over again. And for the entirety of the rest of his life, he is caught in the despair of the impossible goal. He can never escape the canyon that he has been consigned to because he's never strong enough to get it outside of that canyon. What's the point in that? In work, in whatever your work is, uh, there's always going to be somewhere that, someone uh, that's bigger than you, that's, that's faster than you. They're always going to be the $6 million man, bigger, stronger, faster. Uh, there will always be somebody that has greater credentials than you, that is wiser than you. When I was a drummer in a high school band, I was the drum captain of my team, of the, of the band, and then I get to the University of Texas, and I try out for the Longhorn Band, and I discover and begin to ask myself, well, I must have not practiced very much because I was clearly among those who had a much greater caliber than I was. And in that initial shock of realizing I was not quite the one with the chops I thought I had, you feel hollow. You feel like nothing. And that's just a little taste of what you make yourself liable to if you try to turn your work into a substitute for his work. Because there will always be somebody that's greater than you, always be somebody that's better than you. And where you make your work, your measure the measure of yourself and the measure of how you are seen or acceptable to God or to yourself, it is like pushing that rock up every time and finding that you will never get it over the hump. It's the danger. It's the warning. That's the relevance of the gospel's work, the glory of God's work on our behalf, how it speaks to the meaning of our work. But how do you know? How do you know if, if you have made the meaning of your work too much as some sort of substitute. I, I want to show you a clip uh, from uh, This Is Us, uh, where Randall, who has worked uh, at a high-level uh, corporation for a very long time and worked in the highest levels of management in that corporation, he's come to a realization about his work, and he comes time to make a change he never thought he could. Randall, thank God. Ten years, Tyler. I've worked here for 10 years. I brought in 80% of our clients. I grew this company from a six-man operation into a 60-person machine. I've given you 20-hour days, man, like nights away from my wife and children. My father died, man. And on the day of his memorial, you sent me pears, which I'm allergic to, and you know this. 
Because at the lunch where you hired me, we ate Roquefort salad and I went into anaphylactic shock. Randall, and along with the pairs that could have killed me, you sent a card with a one-line hallmark message and a typed-out signature from the team. And for all this, Tyler, I thank you. You see, for days, I've been plagued by this question. How do I honor my father's legacy? And I realized I honor it by taking what I've learned from how he lived his life and having it shape the way I go on living mine. And so here it is, Tyler. Um, I quit. Hold on. No hard feelings, man. I walk out of here in triumph. I came, I saw, I conquered. Sanjay, it's all you now, brother. Peace. What are you going to do? I don't know. Maybe instead of running in the morning, I'll go for a walk. Slow it down a little. Talk to my mailman. That seems like a good way to start the day. Even if you don't know that storyline, you hear in that little impromptu speech of Randall's something that he's come to realize about himself, that, that he had come to value that which he did in the form of vocation to a degree that he realized was never the truth of its true value. And something had to shift in him, something that he probably never dreamt would ever shift in him, and that is that there were things greater than whatever he had given 20 hours a week to and and the disrespect of people that really couldn't care less other than what utility, utility he had to the corporation. He realized that his work was not the measure of himself, and that is the shift that has to occur in us all. And, and what better way to have that shift occur in us than to believe that there is a work that was done on our behalf that it, meant to be, it means to be the anchor of our soul so that we really can love, so that we really can rest, so that we really can be freed to slow down. How do you know when you get it? Do you, can you break off from your work? Can you, can, you, can, you, can you stop comparing yourself to everybody? Can you not look down on those that are less than you and punch up towards those that you think you're envious of. Those are the marks of one who is no longer held captive to this thing that they call their work, that they think it's their meaning. And it's so much easier said than done. That's its warning to us. And, and by this point, when, you, when you've heard me say now for a third time that your work, its meaning, can never be a substitute for God's work, you might, you might be led to conclude that what I'm saying is that, that your work isn't really significant to God, that it's all about his work, and, and you just do you know, something that's not much, and, and, and don't take any joy in it, and don't, don't take any delight in it, and surely don't take too much delight in it. It's not what he's saying. Our, our work can never be a substitute for his work, but it can be a reflection of what he's done for us. That that which he does in us and that which he does through us can actually be radiated out through us in what we do in our work. Look, what we are called to do in being made to work, uh, it's, it's only fulfilling what, what we first heard uh, the instructions given to humanity in, 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 man, in the mandate of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, he says, uh, go and fill and be fruitful, uh, fill and multiply the earth, 
and uh, cultivate it and um, have dominion over it. In other words, don't exploit it. Don't use it for your own selfish purposes, but cultivate it. Steward it. Bless it. Uh, draw out all of its goodness by using the ingenuity that you yourself are given. That's, that's the mandate. That's, that's the grace that's come to us and that, that comes to be expressed through what we do. And, and therefore, to, to live out in that way is, is to reflect upon what he has done and, and then to live out of that sense of our grace. Look, um, a few weeks ago, you heard from um, some of the missionaries we support, the Helms family. Um, we we, we uh, periodically uh, bring them back to your attention just so you know the, what they're up to. And there may be an unintentional message that you get that we think that they should be put on a pedestal. The Helms or, or um, the Bancrofts or anyone else that works in missions that, that somehow their work is more important because they're more explicitly about sharing the good news of Jesus in the far places. Far from it. They are, they are certainly a reflection of that salvation. But if, if what God means to do in and through us, both in that mandate he gives us in Genesis 1 and in saving us not by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, as you heard in the beginning of our worship service in Ephesians 2, then what God is out to do is one thing, and that is to bring life to the world. To bring shalom to the world, to bring wholeness to it. And that is true of missionaries, but it is also true of those who are in other forms of work that go unsung. I'm, I'm recording this sermon to you on a Thursday, and in my neighborhood on Thursday, the trash man comes. And I, I hope that you will not snicker aloud there wherever you might be, but every time the trash man comes, I give thanks. Because if you'll just stop for a minute and imagine what would happen if we didn't have trash pickup. Uh, there is all this rottenness and, and smell and decay that exists in those containers, and, and that decay, if left to grow and to multiply and to fester and not be taken away, will, will turn into something far more than just a smelly can. It will become disease. And so if it were not for the trash man, no trash man, no garbage pickup, no life. He's bringing life. She's bringing life by just taking away my trash. And that is as much an effort to bring life unto this world as any principle or or CEO. And if I might also say, uh, as far as another unsung vocation goes, for those of you who, whose primary activity is raising children, it, it's not a paid job, it should be. Uh, the hours uh, are unforgiving. But when it comes to raising children, you, you need to remember from time to time when you feel like it is a thoughtless, thankless work, that as, uh, as one person named Anthony Bradley put it, no matter what perspective you come from, whether you believe in God or not, or what it, whatever God you might believe in, no one can deny that when the family dies, a society dies. And so the extent to which you give your labor, your sweat, your tears, your blood, and whatever else you might have to give unto that end, to the forging of that family, you are doing precisely God's work in the preservation and the expansion of a society. There is meaning in your work, and therefore, though your work is not a substitute for his work, it can certainly be a reflection. Which leads us to the last thing we want to talk about. If that is the meaning of our work, how does that shape how we do the work? How does that shape the manner of our work? And I've, I take it from, from what Paul says though, towards the end of the passage. There at the end of the passage, he's, 
he's discussing about how God's work inspires him to do his own. And, and so he speaks longingly and affectionately about how he has found purpose to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and even to share in the sufferings of Jesus that he might attain to the resurrection of the dead. He, he speaks of seeking to know Christ and, and to press on to make that prize that he has been called to his own, just as Christ has made him his own. And so in, in just hearing how he wraps up that part of the passage, he's talking about how God's work on his behalf inspires him to do his own work, the work that God has given him. And I think from just those few verses, we can, we can, we can flesh out just three things, three brief things that speak to the manner of our work in light of its meaning. And the first is something that Dorothy Sayers said. When it comes to our work, your responsibility to it is to serve the work even more so than the people that might benefit from it, even though that might be a case. Because if you only go for whatever they're happy with or sad with, then you, then you appeal maybe more so to what accommodates them than to what the work deserves. It's Charles Spurgeon who said, if you're a Christian shoemaker, your first priority is to make good shoes, to serve the work as it deserves. And so Dorothy Sayers, in, a, in an essay she wrote, right in the middle of World War II, when, when she reflects on how prior to the war, uh, so many bad habits had crept into great, uh, to the culture of Great, great Britain, um, waste and knickknacks and people doing shoddy work, and, and then whatever work they did do, it, was, it never lasted, and people would just throw things away too easily. And, and then when a war happens, everybody has to sort of tighten up and dig in and, and prepare themselves and do the best work they could because it was for their own survival. And she, she was certainly gleeful about that way it had transformed the, the culture of work in her country, but she worried that after the war was over, it would just go back to normal, or, or rather back to the way it had been. And so she speaks about what it means to do right by the work when she says this, the worker's first duty is to serve the work. If your heart is not wholly in the work, the work will not be good. And work that is not good serves neither God nor the community. It only serves mammon. If work is to find its right place in the world, it is the duty of the church to see to it that the work serves God and that the worker serves the work. Whatever you do in word or in deed, Paul says, do it as unto the Lord, as if it was for his sake, and to do so by serving the work. To those of you who work hard, may the Lord bless you and keep you in that work. To those who are in a season of frustration and what they might consider themselves to be underemployed, in which they have aptitudes and skills and passions and desires for which they have just not yet found occupation that suits those skills, in which they, they properly long for a different kind of work, may I say that both the, the longing for a different kind of work and maybe even the, the long-standing search for a different kind of work is not at cross-purposes with serving the work that you still have in this moment. It may challenge you in very few ways, and yet in serving that work, you, you discover what it means to be faithful. And that's the second thing, the manner of this work. Not only do you serve it in the way that it deserves, but I think what he's also telling us is that you learn, seek to learn something from the work in what it means to follow the Lord. That there's all manner of ways in which you discover what it means to be faithful and just doing right by what the work deserves. But there are plenty of workplaces 
plenty of workplaces in where it's just difficult to work. And you're in a setting in which it can be cutthroat and backbiting and people full of self-promotion and self-aggrandizement and, and you can't be surprised if people who really have made their work a substitute for everything else to actually treat it in that way and therefore treat everybody as just an impediment to getting there. And in seasons like that, you will either learn how to entrust yourself to a faithful creator and still be faithful and not fretful, or you will just learn how to loathe your work in it. Uh, Chadwick Boseman, you know, is an actor who played Black Panther, and he died last week. He also played Jackie Robinson in the film 42. And a couple years ago, he gave a commencement address at Howard University, in which he spoke of purpose and work and sometimes the setbacks and the sufferings that accompany you in the search for it and also in the, uh, in, the, in the fulfillment of it. Listen to what he said there to Howard University. Sometimes you need to get knocked down before you can really figure out what your, what your fight is and how you need to fight it. Sometimes you need to feel the pain and sting of defeat to activate the real passion and purpose that God predestined inside of you. God says in Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Graduating class, hear me well on this day. When you, this day when you have reached the hilltop and you are deciding on, on next jobs, next steps, careers, further education. You would rather find purpose than a job or a career. Purpose crosses disciplines. Purpose is an essential element of you. It is the reason you are on the planet at this particular time in history. Your very existence is wrapped up in the things you are here to fulfill. Whatever you choose for a career path, remember the struggles along the way are only meant to shape you for your purpose. I don't know what your future is, but if you are willing to take the harder way, the more complicated one, the one with more failures at first than successes, the one that has ultimately proven to have more meaning, more victory, more glory, then you will not regret it. Now, this is your time. <laughs> There are lessons to be learned just by going to work every day. Learn lessons about what it means to follow the Lord and to know that in your purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, the only way you learn how to do that truly is to face any number of obstacles and discover what it means to rest in Him rather than to be fretful. You serve the work you learn what it means to follow the Lord in the work, but lastly, you always remind yourself about what is the true value of that work. And let me close by putting it this way. You are made to work, but you are made by and for the Lord. You're made to work, but you are made by and for the Lord. Whatever it is that you do, whether you love it 
or don't really care for it, and yet it just serves an end just to survive. That's not your glory. There may be full of goodness in it, and delight, and gift, and relationship, and community, and, and wonderment, but he is your glory. And, and that's why I can say both to those who are retirees, and to those who haven't even held down a job yet in their life and are being trained for the work, your work will never commend you to God. Your vocation will never gain a seat at his table. And whereas that might therefore allow you then to be free just to do the work for its own good and not try to use it as a stepping stone in order to feel good about yourself, at the same time it is to remind you that he is your glory and his work is your greatest glory. And in that rest, and in that you rest, and in that rest you're then able to work. As the song you're about to sing says, Trim the wick, ignite the flame, my work it will not be in vain. For we labor unto glory till heaven and earth come down. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.